Hello and welcome to the Deep Track Podcast, an exploration of watches, trends, and culture with a few adventures along the way. I'm your host, Blake Bettner. I'm really excited about the episode that we have for you today. We're going to be diving into a topic that I've been curious about for a long time uh, and into for, for, for a long time, and it is mechanical keyboards. Uh, so I've got a guest on today who's also based in the New York area. His name is Diego of Lightning Keyboards. Uh, we're going to go through uh, some of our history in this space, what drew us into this space, uh, what makes these things so interesting to us, and advocate a little bit for maybe why you should be into this space or at least paying attention to it a little bit as well. Uh, he's also kind of a watch guy, maybe not really, but he wears some nice watch and he's got some pretty cool watches. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, there's going to be a lot of show notes for this one and I will warn you at the onset, uh, there might be some terminology and language at use here that might feel a little foreign to you. But I'll do my best to leave, throw show notes down below. Uh, so there are also great community um, resources uh, from Geek Hack. Again, I'll leave links to this stuff uh, down below to the to, uh, to Reddit, uh, to some discords um, that are all great for this. And it sounds like this is maybe a great time to be getting into this hobby. Um, if you don't see yourself getting into it, I think it's still something that's interesting and, uh, again, worth paying attention to. So without further ado, let's jump into our discussion about mechanical keyboards with Diego of Lightning Keyboards. All right, Diego of Lightning Keyboards, thanks so much for joining me on the Deep Track podcast today. Hey there, Blake. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, so for anybody who's not familiar with uh, with you or with Lightning Keyboard, uh, maybe give us a little introduction uh, about who you are, what you do, and what you're all about. Sure. Um, so my name is Diego. I also go by Lightning or Lightning Keyboards in the community. Um, and I'm based in New York City. I've actually been in this uh, custom mechanical keyboard scene for about um, now eight years um seven eight years and i pretty much what i do is i live stream um custom mechanical keyboard builds as well as feature new projects and designs that happen in the community um via twitch um i post those videos on youtube and i also maintain like an instagram and a website um and yeah i'm pretty much an active collector of keycaps keyboards and all kinds of keyboard related stuff overall but um i started as an enthusiast and um currently i just do this gig as um as a as a streamer and as a custom mechanical keyboard builder for people out there oh that's very cool uh i know that you and i kind of came into this hobby this space around the same time, um, uh, around seven or eight years ago. And of course, it's a space that's changed quite a bit in that time, uh, a bit like the watch space has in that same period of time. Uh, before we get into that uh, and get too deeply into it, we usually start these things off with a wrist check. Uh, I believe you are maybe a little bit of a watch guy. Um, Diego, what are you wearing on your wrist today? Um, well, I'm not huge into watches, but I do wear a watch on a daily since I was a kid. Um, I'm currently wearing a Tissot PRX. I received this as a gift from a family member, and occasionally I wear some other watches. Like I have like a Seiko Cocktail Time. I have like a just a generic Timex Weekender, a Citizen Weekender. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just cycle through simple watches, but I'm not really into anything too deep. Well, on that those are the watches that you just listed off are are pretty much like all-time classics. Uh, so I think you, you could walk into any room full of watch nerds and, and get some respect, <laughs> uh, get some respect for those. That's good. Uh, I am wearing a Rolex Explorer 2 reference uh, 16570 uh, with a polar dial. Uh, it's kind of that, that time of year I like to wear watches like this, get things back on, um, on, on a bracelet. It's a pretty comfortable watch that slips under a big puffy 
coat. It hasn't been too cold here in New York, uh, though. I was just out for a walk no. earlier. It's uh, what? It's maybe like a single layer or something like that around here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's pretty much been above freezing for the past few weeks, so it's been a pretty warm winter. I mean, as it has been the past few years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I could, I could, I could go for for a touch of snow. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind uh, actually. So, um, well, it's cool to hear that you're you're um, uh, that you've been wearing a watch uh, as, as since since you were a kid, and, and you've always got one on kind of on the daily, and and a couple of bangers there too at that. Um, so let's switch gears here and get into the keyboard stuff a little bit. Um, we, as as I mentioned, we kind of entered the space around the same time. Do you remember what it was or where you first kind of encountered um, a mechanical keyboard and what it was about it that kind of pulled you into it, uh, that, that made you kind of initially curious about this space? Yeah, um, I guess my first initial exposure to it, aside from kind of like just products being out there, was when I was actually still in school. Um, this was a long time ago, over 10 years ago. Um, and that was, um, I just had a friend who was really into sort of like retro computing, kind of like vintage, um, like restorations for like old machines, like from typewriters to actual computers. And so he kind of just introduced me to the idea of it. I did have like a mechanical keyboard back then, uh, like this full size, like MX Brown having um cooler master board that I just had gotten as a as a gift from my brother um because he wasn't using it uh and I was enjoying that already and so I didn't really get interested back then uh it was actually in 2016 when I was working um down in the Washington DC area um, a friend of mine or rather someone I got introduced to um through work um he introduced me to keyboards because he just asked me one time he was like hey it's the weekend and um there's this keyboard meetup happening at, um, I think it was Georgetown University at the time. And apparently this was the first meetup, like in-person meetup for um, keyboard nerds, keyboard enthusiasts in that area. And so he just invited me and I said, um, sure, why not? Let's let's check it out. It sounds kind of cool. I kind of have been familiar with the idea of it, but I don't know anything about what this whole custom scene is about. And so, yeah, we went and it was just very different. I think the amount of customization, the appeal of all that, that's what kind of blew me away. That's what really got me into it yeah. when I was first starting. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think um, it, it's it's one of those things that you don't really put much thought into. And it, once you start kind of peeling just a few of the layers back, you realize how deep this world goes. Uh, and, and I think it's kind of initially shocking um, just how deep the space can be and at what level people have gotten into it. And I distinctly remember kind of when, when I had first gotten into it, I think it was a, a set of keycaps that I had seen somewhere on somebody's Instagram or something like when the, uh, like when when the Miami colorway, I think was was kind of becoming a big thing, and and being so mm. curious about that, like what is this? What's going on here? Uh, and then you know digging around on uh, on Reddit, which which I think was a much smaller community back then, and discovering the places like Geek Hack, um, which were still like very yeah. intimidating to me at the time. But uh, it was like this this gulf opened up underneath me as soon as I discovered it, and I was just fascinated by everything there so <laughs> yeah yeah no back then the community was definitely much smaller and the web pages like the websites were kind of just very niche and just full of terminology and things that no one would be familiar with mm-hmm. and so i think the first thing that definitely draws you in at least back then was the pictures and just kind of seeing all these colors out there because you know usually 
keyboards are associated with just kind of a standard gray or black, you know, black, white kind of colorways and um, things that are just very standard, very neutral, very mundane. Um, and then you have like kind of like the gamer appealing keyboards, which have all this lighting and RGB and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the I think the custom scene has just evolved so much. And now we have all these keycap options and and um, all these keyboard options as well. well. We can go deeper into that uh, when it comes to all these options. But yeah. yeah, I think the first thing that I noticed when I entered was just seeing that there was pretty much anything that you could do with respect to the the size of the board as well as the keycap options and yeah. and all these little things that you can actually change up about. Yeah, and I, I think that's you know what kind of initially pulled me in further um, after my initial curiosity was kind of coming to you know realize that this is something that is in front of me every single day, and I write a lot, <laughs> so it's something that I use a lot, and um, you know I figured you know, this is something that I have so much interaction with and maybe it should get more thought and attention uh, to kind of bring a different like quality of life uh, feature and kind of explore, you know, my own creativity. Uh, but I do remember when I got into it, you know, like I buying just kind of a pre-built whatever keyboard, like I think a ducky was, was the first like one that I bought at, at like a micro center or something like that and put different keycaps on it and feeling, like, oh, this is, this is really something cool uh, here. And then learning that people, um, you know, got to the level of like where they were like learning how to solder and like getting solder kits and stations in their home and, you know, starting from the circuit board or even without a circuit board and putting all this together and then programming it all. And I, and I remember thinking, oh, I'll never get to that level. And of course it only took like a year or two before I like had my own soldering iron and was struggling to learn how to, <laughs> how to program one of these things, uh, which I never really figured out all that well, I was kind of just stumbled my way through it. Uh, but like, were you, did, were you surprised at how deep, like that some people went in this and did you have any hesitation about going that deep into it at first? Yeah, I think as far as the technicalities come, I wasn't nearly as surprised as some people might've been at the time or, you know, kind of like yourself. I think most of that might be because I do come from like an engineering background and I was already into this idea of wanting to do more DIY kind of projects. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw that people were just kind of bringing it upon themselves to do whatever need they had to kind of improve their everyday item, which in in this case is the keyboard, um, I thought, well, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Of course, you want to to optimize to to better that device that you're using every single day of your life, uh, especially if you're working in front of a computer. And so for me, it kind of came about naturally. I just I just thought, well, that makes sense that I should be exploring circuits, uh, looking into the electronics of the, these devices. And you know, if you look at um, PCs and if you look at gaming devices, they kind of got into that first as well. And so. I think as a branch um, from that, it, it made sense to me that that existed. However, it was still a bit of a shocking discovery for me to see it uh, much later in time, I think, you know, way past um, the time when I was still like in, in college and university. And so, and yeah, I think now at that point that I had the ability to sort of delve into these kinds of hobbies, I, I got really, really interested in. So mm. Yeah, I just went right in for like a soldering kit and I thought, hey, I think I'm going to enjoy this because this is more hands-on 
this is something that I can just do on my free time. It's kind of relaxing to do something new and to do it myself to actually make something myself from from scratch in a way. Yeah. Um, although there are like you know built kits. Yeah, yeah. These days it's a bit different. Uh, I think people have far more options and and um, avenues to get into this hobby than they did uh, in the early days, uh, which is a good thing. Um, I think. Uh, did you? There is something therapeutic about about this, by the way. Uh, you, you kind of mentioned that it's relaxing, and uh, it, you know, I mean, I would usually like look forward to a weekend when I was knew I was going to be, you know, opening up a hundred switches and, um, you know, replacing the spring or putting lubrication oh on them and doing all that kind of kind of stuff, uh, and then you know, going through the the, the soldering process, all that kind of thing. Uh, it, there is something very enthusiastic about it. Did you ever? Um, did you ever imagine that it would be something that is now like a big part of your livelihood? No, not at all. I really thought it would be a very temporary thing. I thought maybe one or two kind of thing. Yeah, just like every small thing grows, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. that. I, I only thought, well, I'm just going to do something that improves my life at that point, you know, replace something that I have with something that I made and I'm going, going to be kind of done with it. But I think just the sheer amount of options that were coming into that market at the time was really interesting. And so I kind of kept kept at it. You know, I kind of kept kept uh, being peaked. Um, my interest was, you know, still peaked. And I just kept talking to people in this particular community. And yeah, just um, kept trying out new things and purchasing new items and trying them out and seeing how it went. And it was just uh, only a, a little bit later that um, people said, hey, um, you seem to be doing like a pretty cool job of like documenting what you do. And um, so that kind of led me to what I'm doing now. Mm. And so and, it's been interesting. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I think the, the, the part of it for, for me that kind of like also helped draw me in and maybe you can shed some light on this. Cause for me, it was always kind of like a big part of the lore of this hobby were these like very high end. Um, I don't even know if they were manufacturers because they just seem to be people that designed these things and then had them manufactured. Uh, and then you would you'd get in these group buys, but you know, maybe there's only a few of them available and they were kind of like legendary and they would sell for exorbitant sums in, in, in the aftermarket. Like I remember the first time that I heard about duck and, uh, and, and, and what that was uh, and what, how the, what was different about it from like Ducky uh, and then some of the layouts that, that were in some of those boards and then TGR came along like that kind of built up this like mythical lore around these things to me that I was just like I couldn't get enough of it uh, I, I don't know if those uh, builders or designers are still like on the scene as prevalent as, as they were where they're only making you know 10 or 20 of them or something like that. Uh, but that that's kind of what like piqued my curiosity of just what you could do with these things, like all the way up to the high end uh, type levels. Yeah, no, absolutely. There is definitely a mystique around the different makers and the designers in this particular community. I think it especially just comes about because these people are individuals and it's just a one person does something small initially for themselves. They say, Hey, I have a need for a particular layout, a particular type of keyboard and they make it and um at the end of the day these people also don't have necessarily the means to be producing a large scale kind of production and so these items are made in small batches that's what we call group buys it's we basically collect um funds from a group of people who are interested in that specific thing and then it's sent off yeah as you said to a factory manufacturer to be produced 
And once that happens, it's it's gone. You know, it's 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 a one and done kind of thing. Um, unless that particular person decides to run it again, which is obviously rare because they just did it for themselves initially. Yeah. And yeah, there's definitely a lot of mystique around that, especially like you, you kind of feel like you missed the boat, you missed out on it. And then you hear about it later, people kind of laud it, you know, people talk about how good it is, um, how interesting it is, how different it is, or groundbreaking it is. And uh, I think as a spectator or as, as a newcomer, you might feel, wow, I really missed out on that. I really be part of that. And so you start partaking in these particular group buys and these particular small projects, um, uh, small small ideas that come about. And I think that's how people just kind of stay in this particular uh, niche is that there's always something, some small project that grows into something a little bit bigger, a little bit more interesting as time goes on. And there's sometimes user feedback um, associated with it that's implemented into it. And so that kind of improves that small idea into something even bigger. And I think that's kind of what made this space grow over time. There was the the interest of these small um, kind of niche ideas growing into something that's more usable for everybody and that everybody gets to appreciate a little bit more as they are um, further and further into this particular niche. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the FOMO is certainly real with a lot of these things. And, and of course, I think a lot of people would come into it and then discover that the group buy ended like a year ago and people, you know, were still talking about it and waiting for the keyboards, which might not arrive for another like year or something. Uh, and then, you know, seeing one come up in the market was, was always like this really exciting thing. And, uh, and that's how I ended up discovering uh, a lot of these, a lot of these boards. And, you know, I, I think what made them interesting to me was the kind of interesting layouts that they that they employed, uh, something like the Duck TCV3, for, for instance, yeah. um, or even even like the Duck Viper, which which was was kind of like my uh, was one of the boards that really pulled me in just because of that HHKB layout uh, that it that it used. Um, and then he had one that was like an 1800 with no gaps. It was just like a sea of keycaps. And, 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 but seeing all of these layouts was like uh, really what opened up uh, my eyes to, oh, this is something that like I could really make to, um, to my own means, I guess, so, like however, however I would want to use it and then program it however I want to use it. Uh, and to, to this day, one of my daily boards is a, is a TC V3. Um, a duck, which which has held up really well, um, but but you mentioned you know these these are designers and then maybe some of them like new manufacturers that uh, that were really high quality you know and I remember there was being rumors about like oh this guy uses the same people that Apple used for some part of the iPhone or, some, or something like that uh, so to kind of build the, the <laughs> yeah. legend of these boards right and then I feel like the one that came along that that uh, kind of like went mainstream in a different kind of way uh, was the TGR Jane and, and like the V2 of that. Cause, cause it kind of came when, when, when yeah. things were at like mm-hmm. a fever pitch uh, in, in the hobby. And, and of course not many of those were made. Yeah. So that was kind of like the biggest fervor around a board that I remember <laughs> in, in some time, like maybe that in the nine ten. but that Jane board, you know, is still stands out in my mind. It's kind of like a like, legendary board. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think uh, a lot of the fever associated with it also was that because they're limited quantity and as the population of this particular hobby grows, there's just not enough for everybody and people kind of are not necessarily fighting against, but kind of competing slightly against, especially for this particular TGR, Jane. Um, what happened was that they would do like first come, first serve um, for the signups for the production slots of the board. And so you just have to be there at the right time in the right place and so 
if you do miss out, it's it's a bummer. And it's true. I think it's mostly because we, at least in kind of like um, common goods out there or just in general, any kind of product that you buy off a store or whatever, um, you don't quite associate the amount of time that you have to wait for that, I think. And so because it's usually just ready made and it's already in stock and you just buy it off the store and you just get it in the mail, right? But um, in this particular niche, because we are essentially in there from the very first step, which is to submit this particular order to the factory, and then it essentially gets made. Um, it's not a guarantee that it's going to be made until everybody kind of pulls all that money and all that time together. And then you have to wait until it's all made. And so because the production does start from scratch, it yeah, it can take anywhere from, um, you know, as as little as a few months um, up till, yeah, even a couple of years uh, in the case of the pandemic, when it hit, uh, it just really halted all kinds of manufacturing and production capabilities. And so people were waiting here for two, even close to three years. Mm. So um, it was a, it was a tough time, I think around then, especially definitely around 2019 and coming up into a pandemic that was definitely a time when things kind of really exploded in this particular hobby yeah and then i feel like a lot of uh it opened the door for a lot of resellers and speculators like to enter the space as well uh which of course was kind of like reaching its heights around the pandemic as well uh which which would complicated things even further where people would come in and get these things and then start selling them for two three four five thousand dollars on the secondary market uh and and people were buying them and uh which which kind of was yeah. I feel like a bummer for the broader um you know community who had been there a long time who understood these things uh you know maybe a little bit better in what they were getting were kind of like priced out of their own hobby uh which is definitely like a huge parallel to oh, <laughs> to the watch space as well. So yeah. Uh and then the keycap yeah, is no. like a whole other element to it as well. And that kind of started kind of getting into the same thing, right? Yeah, I think the keycaps too. I think nowadays there's a lot of new resources from in-stock supplies and products and new vendors have come in and come and, and gone out in the pandemic period as well as before. And then keycaps is an interesting thing. It sort of starts as this thing that initially is just made for um, like point of service products, right? Like pre-builds and whatnot. And then now we have all these keycap options that vary in, first of all, materials, like there's ABS plastic and PBT plastics. There's, of course, different manufacturers. It first started with like old big companies like Cherry Corporation. Mm-hmm. And then now we have people who have sort of like inherited a lot of that um, knowledge and applied that uh, applied their engineering expertise to making these new keycaps. And now there's new options to make, um, you know, you know, double shot injection molded um, plastic keycaps of various colors with various materials. And so, and now you have different vendors pretty much working with a variety of manufacturers to produce them in, in all forms and, you know, profiles and whatever. Uh, that means profiles, meaning uh, the shape of the particular keycap mm-hmm. um, and how it feels when you're typing on it. And yeah, and effectively it grew from something that was, hey, well, let's submit just a small batch order of, 100 or 200 uh, sets for people to, I think in the pandemic at the peak of it, we had orders of five, 6,000, 7,000. Mm. Um, and so we were talking about really big, big production. And, you know, these, some of these companies are actually making, you know, from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And so it's become a rather big business in just the customization aspect. Um, and in a one particular part of it alone, which is keycaps and keyboards, of course, their habits, they have their own issues and their own particular 
um, little caveats and little subtleties associated with the whole manufacturing process as well, and that's grown a lot in the past few years. And and I, I feel like the you know the, there, there's something to be considered here between these two elements because some of the keyboards that we've been talking about have uh, you know as I mentioned, I guess unconventional layouts you you could say uh you know the the, the yeah. tcv3 for instance has a kind of a, a grouping um of of keys off to the left uh you know that, that you wouldn't find on like a, a normal keyboard and and this this comes into play when you are selecting the keycaps that you're going to put on your keyboard because they all have to yeah. kind of fit the profile that you that you need them to um, across those rows. So unless you know you're going with something like a DSA profile, which is flat and uniform across the entire board, you know you have to consider: um, well, is this going to provide coverage for my board? And not only that, and there's something else that we'll get into: the layout that you prefer using. Um, and I don't know about you, but like my preference for like the layout that I use has 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 changed and I have kind of like, uh, I don't know if it's super unique, but I, you know, I like the backspace down on the, on the row too. Uh, so it's like just right above the, the mm-hmm. return. I find that easier. So, you know, it's, it's a little things like that. And then a function with a short shift over, over on the right. So like those are little kind of things that I make sure to look for in the keycap sets that are being produced. And a lot of them offer different like small kits that are produced in various numbers as, as, as I understand it, just because it's a smaller um, market of people that use some of these more like, I guess, niche layouts uh, <laughs> would be the way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, which I think is an interesting thing, uh, you know, here in, in terms of the manufacturers that you've mentioned, like Signature Plastics and GMK. Um, I feel like are the two still major ones, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I would say they're pretty big. Yeah. yeah, and they are the ones making the same profiles, like that Cherry profile that you mentioned uh, is 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 made mm-hmm. and, and owned, I believe, by. GMK, uh, like that's the only place you can get them. But yeah, I believe they own the molds from the original company of Cherry and that that produced it. Uh, okay. Um, okay. They they have they they ha- they basically kind of bought out the technology that was being used to make those ABS double shot plastic keycaps um, from Cherry, and so GMK is the lead kind of um, vendor out there for that. They're based in Germany, and then there's a lot of other people. Um, like in China, there's a lot of. Um, designers and manufacturers like Hammerwork, CRP, there's Enjoy PBT, there's a few mm-hmm. others out there that also produce Cherry Profile, but the, for example, they produce it in PBT plastic, which is a different kind of plastic. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, yeah, Signature Plastics, which you mentioned, they're American-based. Um, the, they make, you know, these uniform profiles like the DSA profile, uh, but they also make these spherical kind of retro-looking profiles like the SA profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a very tall kind of profile. And so we have just a variety and there's been more popping up lately. And so it's it's been pretty cool to see just the amount of variety that exists now. Um, compared to the beginning, I think you usually consider maybe three or four profiles, but now you have over, over a handful. Of yeah, it's great to hear there's more, more options. Maybe uh, 10 people. or so. Um, and and yeah. I mentioned kind of the kind of legendary keyboards that have all this Liz lore around them. It's the same with keycap sets too. Before this was like kind of as big as it was. In the SA that you mentioned, that's uh, the kind of tall, like those are the real retro looking um, uh, caps. Like um, 
like essay, like penumbra and calm depths and, and just like oh, colorways wow. that were, you know, like, oh, like, oh, that person has a set or, or one came up for sale and it's like, you know, it's gone in an instant uh, kind of a thing. I remember, you know, just sets like this really kind of trying to keep an eye out for, I guess now they've done all kinds of like reruns of these classic colorways, if I'm, if, if I'm, if I'm yes, remembering correctly. True. Uh, which, yeah, uh, yeah, there have been reruns. Have there? And uh, and let's see, like uh, the Hyperfuse was another was it was another one. Uh, and I feel like the guy that designed some of those early ones was I don't know if he's still around the community or not. Um, but yeah, I, you know that, that's the kind of stuff that made this like really fun for me back in the day and kind of pulled me through. You know, of course now I have these like totes full of. <laughs> Keycap sets, uh, so you know maybe once a quarter or something like that. I'll swap around, um, swap them out to get to get a different feel. Do you? What's your preferred profile of cap to use? Um, for keycap sets, I prefer the um, cherry profile. I think just generally, I've tried just the whole variety out there and have settled to that cylindrical shape that the cherry profile has. Mm -hmm. It's similar to what's out there on a lot of the pre-builds nowadays, um, but uh, it's just comfortable. It's just comfortable. The profiles are very nice to use. Uh, it's kind of aesthetically pleasing when you look at it from the side, you know, when you're looking at your desk from afar, even up close. And um, so, yeah, I think pretty much I stick to what a lot of us, like more, I guess, veteran enthusiasts kind of stick to, which is a lot of the GMK, a lot of the, like the pvt like hammer works or whatever yeah. um but uh, yeah i've kind of stuck to that as far as like layouts i think you were mentioning earlier i actually do have a tcv3 myself oh do you a uh, very interesting layout yeah yeah i do it's i actually also was a i think back when we started it was definitely a big thing to follow duck mm -hmm. uh, duck is a is he's a he's an old engineer from korea right he makes all these keyboards in different layouts and he was really the trailblazer for a lot of that stuff as well as there's um of course like older designers or design groups out there like otd and those guys yeah. right, were also korean based um and then there's been some more based elsewhere like in southeast asia as well as like in in europe and here in america as well uh but layout wise i pretty much stick to two different layouts for me the 60 percent right um, just like the Duck Viper that you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, is for me the ideal space saving, uh, and yet still functional layout. And then um, I do TKLs a lot, ten kilos, which is kind of like the standard, um, you know, the cut down version from the full size, just without the numpad. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty much, it has everything I need. Um, and since at least in custom mechanical keyboards, you can reprogram things, you can get access to more things uh, for any kind of keys that you might need. And then it's, I would say it's probably the aesthetically most pleasing for me, mm -hmm. um, especially just trying out different keycap sets as well as just different kind of colors of boards and things like that. I think it's just been those two layouts that have been for me the most pleasing to use. And do you use, tell me about your bottom row uh, here. Are you a, a seven unit uh, space bar guy with the, the real wide um, you know, command keys uh, out there on the edges? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I do. I do like seven U for most of my um, keyboard builds. Um, and for example, I adopt a lot of what the Happy Hacking keyboard, the HKB uses, right? Like the control, I put, I map that onto where the caps lock position is. Um, on sixty percent, occasionally I will also do what you said when the backspace is um, right above the return or the enter mm -hmm. key. Um, the split backspace, I occasionally do that, like on sixty percent, especially. But for a larger. Layout, yeah, I kind of stick to more of the classic layout. 
Uh, but I do have my preferences. You know, I use, I use like step caps lock for mm. um, you know for the aesthetics yeah. of it. But I still map the control on that part. And and for the bottom row, yeah, I pretty much go with if it's like a ten keyless board, right? I always try to pick out the win keyless blocker board, which yeah, it doesn't have a win key, but I can remap things. So I actually map the win key <laughs> where the left control originally is yeah, yeah. and the left control goes where the caps lock is and so you know you can kind of play around with that layout and so that's how i've adapted my own typing um to to my particular needs and to, and and still being able to satisfy what i want aesthetics wise yeah it's it's so cool and in 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 all these kind of weird layouts that we're talking about and i and uh you know i don't mean weird in a in a bad way because they're not weird and in fact like they're not even that new and i i feel like a lot of the you know there there are parts of the community that um that has gone to great lengths to kind of like look into the history of these things uh not only like the keycaps themselves but different kind of unusual layouts that were used in um uh like corporate settings uh you know like uh, like the kiosk mm-hmm. behind the um, you know, the, at the airport when they would take your ticket or something like that. And, and some of the boards and layouts that have come to light, I think are really fascinating. And, and I think obviously it's all kind of centered in this like ergonomic discussion around like what the individual um, jobs, you know, like um, needs were, uh, right? And, and are, are a lot of these kind mm-hmm. of born from things like that? Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. I mean, I think a lot of the layouts that we have are, I would say the vast majority of them are, I mean, at least for the 10 keyless, for example, it's born out of the classic IBM keyboard, right? And the the airport keyboard that you're talking about is probably the like 1800 layout, which is uh, used a lot of in the um, like server racks where they still use a lot of, um, do a lot of data entry and number entry. So they do have a numpad, but it's a slightly more compact layout because the server rack doesn't have that much room to store a keyboard. Mm. And so a lot of these layouts are born out of need. Um, 60% were born out of the need of having more space on the desk for the for the gamers and the users out there who might need more space and they just don't have the depth of the desk to use that, uh, to use a larger keyboard. And so it's it's interesting. We kind of think of this as like a novel idea, as like an innovative idea, but then it is born, it has a precedent to it. I think a lot of the things that we have in our community have some kind of historical precedent. Um, and I think now we justify it because now we can think about the comfort of that, the aesthetics of that, the customizability of that. And of course, um, if you are really deep into the hobby, you're thinking about how it's going to how it's going to type, how it's going to feel, and how it's going to sound. Um, and just these are some of the considerations that I think a lot of the enthusiasts in this particular niche have, uh, and that people coming from outside um, might just be getting introduced to it and then realize how that actually does improve what um, they perceive to be such a mundane kind of a daily device. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's something that I want to talk about uh, a little bit as well. The kind of why uh, of all this, and of course, it's beyond um, you know just our enjoyment of customizing things and the aesthetic uh, element of it, um, which we'll get into. I just want to make a quick note about um, a book that is, I think, maybe it's still in pre-order. It's called Shift Happens um, on Kickstarter by Marson. Uh, Wichari, Wichari, uh, I think, and this is a documentation of the history of keyboards from early typewriters to modern mechanical marbles, um, told told in, in two volumes. So I'll leave a link to that down in the show notes below if you're uh, if you're curious about that. I think he's about to ship uh, about to ship these books. So um, at any rate, uh, the why of this kind of stuff. I mentioned earlier that it can be a little therapeutic to go through some of this stuff, like uh, like the soldering. Um, 
uh, of, of all of the switches into a PCB. But there's more than that, uh, isn't there? And there's a lot of like little things that I think maybe people might not realize on a lot of little, at least back when I was doing this, like kind of, um, I don't know, maybe not like cheats, but like the Band-Aid mod to get a little padding underneath the stabilizers uh, and things that would kind of like reduce the kind of clackiness of, especially the uh, the, sp- the space bar, which I could, which I always had a hard time uh, getting like tuned just right. Uh, but there are people that, that open up the switches themselves and tune the switches for, for their own need. And this clearly comes down to like the weight of the spring inside of the switch. And then you applying uh, uh, certain or different types of lubrication, as far as I know, to, to different areas of the switch, all in trying to get this uh, kind of a feel that you like. And of course there's switches with bumps and switches with no bumps and switches with clicks. Um, yeah, I think there's a there's a preconceived notion that all these the mechanical keyboards are all like super loud and clicky, uh, but it's not like that. And there are different yeah. switch options that are silent. Um, I always preferred these switches from from Zelio, these silent um, Zelio switches uh, with like a 52 gram spring in them, and then lubed uh, on a certain part of the switch. Then it would really all kind of come to life. And once you get it all together, you know, after like a full afternoon or day, and then sitting down and typing like a few paragraphs on it was is what like really when it all started to click uh is this something that that you do is this something that that people still do and discuss like different spring types different switch types different lube <laughs> lubrication types uh is this something that people are still like getting deep down into the science of oh absolutely i think um i mean i i have like a like a small server like a discord server where people also talk like community related stuff as well as just kind of like their own preferences i think a lot of the time the daily interaction on on small community places like that is that or like message boards right like ecac and other places and reddit mm-hmm. is that you everyone has their own preferences then that's kind of like what's being preached out there it's like everyone has their own preference everyone has their uh, particular liking of the spring waiting right like some people lighter typist some people are lighter typist some people actually just have the need for a lighter typing experience because they just maybe have um you know trouble typing mm-hmm. maybe it's difficult for them or maybe they're suffering from a particular health concern that they might have and that just requires them a certain ergonomic way of doing things and yeah i think people just kind of get into the little niche like small details about how to lubricate the switch on some people say okay well i want something that feels a little bit more buttery right so they apply a bit more lubricant some people will say i want something that still feels like the stock switch like the one i get from the shop but i still want it to be still want to get rid of some of that extra crunchy sound that comes out of the spring Mm -hmm. And they'll talk about, you know, which particular oil they're using or which particular lubricant they're using. And uh, same thing, you know, like with the silencing and whatnot, I think if you go into a different type of mechanical switch, in this case, the Topra switch, mm-hmm. right? People will talking about how they use silencing pads or silencing rings to to um, kind of dampen uh, some of the extra like high frequency noise or and or extraneous noise that happens in the case or in the particular switch. And so, yeah, I think these discussions just happen on the daily, um, mm-hmm. not just in my particular community, but it just happens everywhere. And this is actually a discussion I do have pretty often. And at the end of the day, it's just the it's just the minutiae, and it's also part of the fun. I think it's the fact that we all have preferences, and that, for example, in my case, as a mechanical keyboard builder, right, I provide a build service for people out there. 
um, people do approach me with those particular needs in mind and say, hey, um, so I'm actually looking for this and I actually don't really know the terminology or what products to buy, mm-hmm. but I know you've been exposed to all of these. So uh, what options do you think would be good, right? And I kind of recommend them a few different ideas. And we just go in this back and forth of what is going to kind of nail down that particular taste, that particular um, typing feel that they might want or sound that they might want. And uh, yeah, it's it's just this constant pursuit, I think. Um, those tastes also change over time. I know folks who have been in this particular scene just about as long as ourselves, and they're still tuning small <laughs> things. Like they're still saying, hey, I realize that I actually like this particular spring waiting more, and I'm just... I'm going back on my keyboards, like on on all the one the ones that I've built so far, and just swapping them all. And I'm, and I'm like, you know how like how long that's going to take? Because if you did solder, then you have to desolder yeah. them, and then, then you have to take them all out, and you have to open them all up, and just be careful that all the pieces are all there, and and replacing them. And it's a very tedious, but at the same time rewarding mm-hmm. process, I think. Um, yeah. And at the end of the day, I think it's just once you start using it, right? Once you start typing away, once you start using it on your daily daily life, it's when you, it really pays off and you realize, oh, that was actually pretty much worth it. Um, and I did it myself, so I'm kind of out of it, right? I think that's yeah. the the big appeal of this particular uh, hobby. Yeah, it's very satisfying when it all comes together in a way that you that you like. Uh, and, and honestly, like, I feel like sometimes it just takes, I mean, again, you know, these are things that we are using constantly all throughout the day, you know, writing... 10,000 words on, on or, or whatever. So I think it's, it's something that like after a few weeks of use really kind of starts to like make a lot of sense uh, to like as, as you're using it. Um, so, so if people, you know, are listening to this and, you know, thinking that we probably sound a little crazy, like what, like how, how would like somebody new coming <laughs> into the space, like even discern, like start to like, okay, what, what are the different like kind of switch types? What makes them different? Um, and why would I want to go through all this with, with the switches? Is there a good like source that's like a, um, you know, like a primer on, on this kind of stuff that for, for newcomers to this space that they could look into or start to, you know, I guess studying if, if they're curious? Yeah. Yeah, I do think there are now guides out there. I mean, I personally tend to kind of teach people through my live streams in particular, um, when people just come in and ask questions live and I just kind of answer them and I'm also open to receiving messages from folks. But there are also guides, written guides out there. I believe um, Mr. Alex Otos, he's based in Toronto. He He's written up a nice guide. I believe Mr. Matt Encina, who is kind of into also like lifestyle kind of content. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, I think his website is Mod Musings. He also has like a small guide on how to build mechanical keyboards, how to choose parts. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can always look up on YouTube on you know how to xyz on mechanical keyboards and there's a bunch of guys out there for it too um there are i think the keyboard hobby right now in particular is the most accessible it has ever Mm -hmm. been um there are not only um now there's kits that you can assemble without any kind of soldering experience required and the parts are as cheap and as accessible as they can be they're all in stock and available at different vendors in many, many different regions, not just North America. Um, and yeah, so it's it's just the amount of options out there. And I think now with all these guides and all these resources, it's as easy as ever to get into this particular thing. I think when we came in, um, there wasn't as much as that. You did kind of have to go through the word of mouth a little bit so that you can learn a few tips and tricks and here and there from more 
veteran experienced members at the same time as reading some of the small amount of information that's out there actually written out and documented. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now I think that's a completely different story. It's it's definitely very, very accessible now. I'm glad to hear that. I think that's a really good thing and and something that you know, the space needed uh, was more accessibility. Uh, and I also, you know, when I started to really get curious into this, I would just dive into the old threads on geek hack and, and just like read through them uh, entirely, uh, which was helpful for me. But there's, you know, if, as you might have surmised by listening to us, there's, you know, endless uh, combinations uh, here that, uh, that you could arrive at uh, uh, that you can choose from to, to kind of suit your taste. So, um, and, and as you mentioned, you don't have to do the soldering thing. Um, I feel like it was maybe uh, this Australian guy, Rama, that came along that, uh, that was the first that I remember kind of like being exposed to a PCB that you could just press the switch into. <laughs> Uh, so you, you know, there's a, um, there's a, there's a layer between those two things. Um, so of course you put the switch into the plate, you know, whether it's plastic or composite or steel or aluminum or something. And then, and then the, the switch would just go right into, uh, into the circuit board. Uh, is this, this, is this becoming like a bigger thing? Yeah. So that's what we, nowadays we call hot swap, um, socket PCBs, right? So PCB just stands for printed circuit board and hot swap socket is exactly what it sounds Mm -hmm. like. It pretty much allows you to pop in or pop out switches as you wish, um, whether that might be an individual switch or the whole entire keyboard. And so they're basically little, little plastic sockets with metallic inserts that, um, essentially create that circuit, that full circuit with the, with the circuit board that's do that's like the brains of the keyboard that's doing all the, all the work of, um, digitizing your, your keystrokes and sending them to computer, right? And nowadays, um, instead of creating that direct bond of, of the metal pin from the switch to the actual circuit board using solder, nowadays we have these hot swap sockets that allow you to just, um, insert or, um, remove the switches as you mm. need. Um, there, there's pros and cons to all these different methods. But uh, the good thing is that you can choose and they're all accessible and uh, oftentimes they'll offer both options out there. So if you're here as a new purchaser of a particular product that you usually will be given the option to pick between two. So if you're new and trying things out, then, you know, hot swap is is a highly recommended thing because you get to try out different switches as well on the same particular keyboard that you bought instead of having to come to one thing and redoing it all over if you need if you had to. Um, and um, not to mention the price is no different. It's usually a five to 10 buck difference, let's mm-hmm. say, um, in between choosing the solderable option and the hot swap option. Um, but um, some, I think, I think the more veteran enthusiasts do prefer soldering before because they can commit to it and it affords some kind of flexibility in the layouts they're picking. And, um, it, you know, the parts are just kind of stuck on there. So there's no kind of vibrations or movements that you have to worry about or, a switch popping off <laughs> because you popped off a keycap or something like yeah. that. So, um, yeah, I think the good thing is that the option is now available and it's, it's pretty much widespread now. So it definitely started a few years ago, as you said, with like Rama works and a few uh, smaller vendors mm-hmm. out there. But now um, it's pretty much ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So what, and that brings up kind of like something that, that I think about sometimes with, with some of these, I guess, not old, but maybe like more classic, like unusual layouts for boards that, you know, I don't know if I could go and get like a different PCB uh, to to put in there. Um, 
like uh, like the TCV3, for instance, or, you know, the Duck Jetfire, yeah. I think it was, or something like that, uh, you know, that had kind of like these real unique layouts that I couldn't just go and get a third-party circuit board with the, that was like hot swappable mm-hmm. or anything like that. Uh, or or do, do, does that kind of thing exist? So I guess that's something that maybe people should keep in mind if they want to opt for a, an unconventional layout, right? Yeah, it's certainly true that the more unconventional the item that you're trying to buy is, is the likelihood that the parts are going to be exclusive to itself, um, like the layout being one thing, um, and the particular like plate or PCB in this case that you're talking about. So if you do need like replacement materials for those, um, at, at least for a lot of designers and a lot of makers out there, uh, for the plate, for example, they will release um, plate files. They'll just release like 2D plate files that you can just send out to a mm. like a laser cutting service or CNC machining service, and they'll they can you know they can produce a one off or or maybe you're doing a small group thing and getting ten of them mm-hmm. right but you can definitely make those different plates in different materials if you wanted to try different materials as well and as far as circuit boards are concerned i think the main tip i would say is if you're buying something very niche and you know that maybe you can break or something like that just get an extra mm. um but if it's something that maybe you're willing to go through the effort of asking some of the experts out there maybe some uh, PCB designer or someone like that, then you can always commission someone to kind of do this kind of bespoke one-off item for you that just replicates that particular circuit board that maybe broke or maybe you just want a replacement of. Um, there's people who who do that. Um, I, w- I wouldn't say like the service is like kind of like actively available um, out there and people like promote it all the time, but there definitely are folks out there who are very, very talented, very, uh, very skilled um, and smart engineers who can actually reverse engineer the particular circuit board that you might have and uh, make a replacement for yeah that's amazing yeah from what i remember this seemed to be kind of like a, a pretty tight-knit community um that was always willing to to help to help each other out um I, I actually remember sending one of my boards i think it was a duck jet fire um over to this guy in seattle that, so he could use it to get to the pcb onto via um or, or at least like program a profile for it or something like that. And he needed the, the actual PCB. So I sent it to him, um, oh, which he was yeah. able to do the magician or something like that. I forget what his username was, uh, but, um, uh, Mac Merlin. Probably. Yeah. Merlin. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and that's the other part of this is I, I, I hope that the, the kind of customization in terms of the programming element has become a lot easier or at least more idiot proof. <laughs> Like me, if you're if you're not really someone that's exposed to a lot of like coding, I guess. Yeah, I think a lot of the technicality of that is completely gone now. It's uh, been made common for a uh, you know very easy to follow user interface, where it's just kind of plug and play, and you just click and choose on mm. um, if you want to remap a key and whatnot. And a lot of the circuit boards nowadays will just come pre-flash, meaning that they're already pre-programmed for that user interface to be used which actually is like web accessible. So you don't even have to have a program installed on your computer oh, nowadays, wow. which is pretty cool. Okay. Um, it, yeah, the, the hobby has really come such a long way in terms of accessibility. I think just kind of like anywhere from the, what people call the low end or the, or the mid, right? It, it's really grown so much where there's been a pretty strong race to the bottom. So sort of trying to get a very, very accessible product at a very cheap price. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the quality standard has gone up quite a bit, and you can get a really, really nice keyboard or um, whatever accessory you might need for very cheap 
that is. And of course, the high end or the more exclusive end, if you're looking for that like one limited thing, does exist as well. So people, there's kind of like a little bit of everything for everyone. Yeah. But I would say in terms of convenience and quality of life experience, uh, especially I think you would know as a as a person who used like the duck keyboards, right? The duck keyboard programmability was kind of a nightmare oh because yeah. back in the day, they also had like the Korean um, program, right? Like it was like it was done in Korean. And so like you had like there was this whole complexity with being Windows only and whatnot. And so but at that's virtually gone now. And it's amazing. I mean, there certainly are some people who do still pr do proprietary software and whatnot, but it's very rare. I think now the demand for having a working product that's accessible that's um os agnostic so like you can use it on any operating system on any computer has is pretty much a necessity now for a product to be successful and so i think that's just easy to get and it's pretty much going to be there as soon as you get the particular product well i'm happy to hear that it sounds like a great time to be entering uh the, the space if, you, if you're out there listening and have any curiosity and this kind of thing i've got two unboard unbuilt boards right now that are kind of older ones i guess um tx uh i have a tx cp and a tx 1800 yeah which were two which ended up being like two of my favorite boards from kind of back in the day um that that i had sold um and uh, and I put out a wanted to buy uh, thread, and a few people came out of the woodwork and, and had some that were unbuilt. So so I'm waiting to build those until I kind of get my head around the modern landscape of like switches and um, and if if there's anything new that I would want to try uh, over my standby um, Zelio switches. Uh, all right, so as we wrap things down, um, what is do you have a preferred uh, I know you mentioned that you like the profile GMK, uh, the Cherry profile. Uh, do you have a colorway? Do, do you swap your caps very often, or do you have like a single colorway that you stick with? Yeah, no, I do. I do have a very large number of keycap sets. I mean, not not just because of the type of work that I do, but just because I'm a collector as well. Um, I do have a number of keycap sets that I personally like. I mean, I have also run a couple of sets myself, like through the community. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say some of the classics, I, I mean, I think the undeniable classics or what people call the Holy Trinity or so out there is going to be white and black, mm -hmm. um, any kind of beige colorway sets, which is very like retro vintage looking. Yeah. And then there is the Dolce colorway, oh, yeah. right, which is mm -hmm. a dark gray and a warm gray co combination, which you can mix and match with accents and whatnot. That's a very versatile yeah. set. I think those three sets are kind of like, a. I think most enthusiasts will come about and either dislike them at first for looking very boring and bland, or they might kind of embrace it because it is boring and bland. It has the versatility of being neutral. Um, so I think those are three are kind of like must-haves. But some others that I personally really enjoy are um, there's uh, GMK Honeywell, yeah. which is yeah. somewhat vintage-based, but it has this white, gray, and red sort of based um, color palette. Um and I think, uh, oh yeah, like Jim Kitaro, for example, might be another one that's um, more recent, but it's also this like very heavy and saturated purples um, with like yellow and teal accents that come about. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think there's a there's many key sets that I do like, and I do swap them pretty frequently. I sometimes, heck, I mean, I think I'm definitely on the very, very deep end of collectors who 
I, I will purchase keyboards solely because they offer a particular color that will match a particular set. And so <laughs> sure. um, I think that's kind of what happens once you get deep enough. It's you're, you're, pick, you're picking because you want to mix and match very, very specific things. And, yeah. and you're pretty much waiting for that criteria to be fulfilled. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I love it. Yeah, I've kind of done done a little bit of everything there. Those are all yeah. just awesome keycap sets that you mentioned. I, I use Honeywell um, often. Uh, I think I have GMK Metropolis uh, on the TCV3 right now. Um, but mm-hmm. Honeywell is just kind of one that I always come back to. And then, as you mentioned, the kind of beige ones, the uh, GMK 9009, um, I, I think is, is still just like an all-time mm-hmm. uh, great. I remember the first time I put that keycap set on a keyboard in my office and somebody saw it and said, what is that? The first keyboard ever made. And they all started kind of like laughing at me. And then they came over and like picked it up and it was like super heavy. And they were like, what is this thing? And then of course, like they all had questions about it. And you know, it's one of those just weird things that you see and it's just like so captivating. Uh, but I think I was able to win a few people over <laughs> into, into this space with that. Uh, That's good. Yeah. I've done the same at work. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fun experience for, for people to learn and see this stuff for the first time. And then, like, you know, I tell them, well, type on it for a while. And they're like, oh, that's really interesting. Because it's not something that you th- you take it for granted completely, yeah. typing on, like, crappy keyboards all day, every day. And you type on something mm-hmm. that's, like, a different experience. It's, like, really yeah. refined. And it's, like, whoa. It's, like, uh, en- enlightening, you know? Cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's, yeah. It's it's the daily life items, right? You You don't think about them until you experience something different. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, is there any? Um, is there are there any like uh, buy group buys or or new up and coming brands or designers or anybody that like in particular that's kind of caught your eye right now that other people should be paying attention to? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's so many nowadays. I think some of the uh, the particular projects that I'm uh, I've been enjoying. There's a designer from Texas. His name is. Um, Juan, but he goes by Daji Keyboards, D-A-J-I Keyboards. He does he does kind of like classic inspired board designs, um, and yet he still implements some like more modern items. Um, like you know, for example, like there's there's a new board that oh no, not new, but there's one that's about to fulfill called the Set, which is like a sixty percent, as it implies. Mm. Um, and that, for example, has Bluetooth. Um, so you can actually use it wireless if you want. Oh, nice. Um, and yeah, yeah. So there's there's things like that, and of course there are, um, kind of like big, um, vendors who, or rather big designers who have um done a lot of projects. Of course, um, like uh, Singa KBD Singa keyboards, they're pretty popular. They're sort of like the, the sort of like the cousin of TGR, right? I mean, not quite literally, more more so they're like close friends, but oh, sure. they they have the similar kind of like high end reputation, right? Yeah. Um, they've they've also been putting pu- putting new stuff out there, and then, um, yeah, there's uh, there's just a plethora of them out there. Um, for example, like soon I'm going to be reviewing this particular product. I think it's called a Neo Eighty, and it's a TKL for like sub hundred fifty dollars, but it's perfectly it has everything. You know, it's like nice anodization for the case, right? And it comes with pretty much all the accessories you need, and oh, it's it looks very nice, and you know. Um, they're they're selling it for 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 under two hundred dollars, which at least in this particular side of the community, it's considered pretty pretty inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Although um, I understand that anyone coming new to this particular niche might be thinking, "Wow, I'm spending over 
20 to 50 dollars for a keyboard that's insane um <laughs> yeah. but yeah i think the the deep end really has no end but yeah. um i think there's just the the plethora of of new products that are available have gotten a lot more um more accessible and cheaper and and uh, still preserve a lot of quality and a lot of the features that people are asking for. Mm. So, well, it's great to hear. Um, and this was one question that I have to ask. Somebody um, sent me a message asking that I ask you your favorite resin cast sure. click, click clack. Favorite resin cast click clack from <laughs> Jeff Leopard on Instagram. And this kind of okay, opens okay. up something that we didn't even get into, which is a whole other discussion, which is like these custom keycaps. Dear. <laughs> so <laughs> our artisans, I guess I yeah, should say, yeah. right? Um Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's a that's a niche I'm pretty deep into myself. Okay. Um I, I do know Mr. Mr. Jeff Leopard. Um <laughs> uh, it's it's a it's a tough question, but I would say, um, one of my favorite. I mean, I don't, I don't. It's not a cap that I own, but one of my favorite resin caps, Clay Clags. Clay Clag is the name of a particular uh, maker, actually the first known artisan maker recorded in like the geekag side of history. Mm. Um, is this one? They make this very infamous, very famous um skull design keycap and i think one of the colorways i really like from that is the the tri shark colorways like this sort of this um, blue grayish color um and with a gray base and with some lilac accents on it oh. and it looks great but anyway it's just this classic um but yeah uh in artisan keycaps that's that's a whole niche um that's a <laughs> yeah. niche within a niche and i would say that's where also a lot of the a lot of the just very very deep end community members are born into and so uh basically it's i mean to just put it shortly right it's going to be um there's artists who who sculpt um a particular small miniature sculpture um out of clay they'll mold it with silicone and then they will cast them and they'll cast them by hand with resin uh like whether it's polyurethane or epoxy resin and they'll you know make them in different colors, and those will be produced. And they're basically miniature artwork um, for uh, which have keycap um, features, so you can still mount them on your keyboard. And you know people will purchase them for whatever amount. I mean, they sell them. They typically have rainfalls for them mm -hmm. because they make a limited number of them. And they'll do a variety of different colorways for a particular design. Maybe retire one design and sculpt a different one, and so on. And there's nowadays, I would say there's hundreds of makers out there. But when I was starting, there were maybe like a few dozen that were very well known. Yeah. And um, it's also a scene that has grown immensely to the point where you could say that nowadays there's a there's a decent amount of saturation on all aspects of the keyboard hobby, mm. um, both keyboards, keycaps, as well as um, these resin cast artisan keycaps as well. Yeah. But that side is just really, if you want to go deeper to the customizing end or into the um appreciating more of the creative side more of the artistic side of the community i think that's also another part that can be considered um very very niche and not to mention completely extravagant as far as um it's not something that you need it's something <laughs> yeah. that you appreciate because you you like the creative efforts of people out there yeah yeah well it's something that uh, watch people i think can certain certainly appreciate so i have one it's a fugu, oh absolutely it's a fugu, i think i have uh in the gmk hyperfuse yeah. colorway uh that came with 
mm. or I won it with uh, with one of the first early runs of uh, of GMK Hyperview. So I never know what to do with it, but uh, oh, but it looks very cool. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it it certainly. <laughs> I I remember even back when people would post pictures of these R's and keycaps, they're like, wow, it really ruins the aesthetic of the board <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it looks very spiky or it looks very off. It's like, wow, I don't want this fish looking keycap on my keyboard. Yeah. I just want my flat profile keycaps. But <laughs> exactly. um, I, I think it, there's a little bit of, uh, there's a little bit of everything for everyone. Yeah. Um, different, you know, different strokes. So yeah, absolutely. Um, that's definitely a very, very niche yeah. um, aspect. Well, well, yeah, there'll be, I'll leave links to some of this stuff down below in the show notes. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, Diego, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on the podcast. It's just been awesome to talk to you. Um, where can people go find more of you? Where can they go follow you and watch you build keyboards? Um, sure. Um, so I feature uh, new projects and designs through live streams. Um, I do custom keyboard builds. I typically do it on Twitch. So you can find me on twitch.tv slash lightning keyboards altogether. Or I also do have a website, lightningkeyboards.com, and you can go to all my other socials there. There's uh, Instagram, Discord, Twitter, whatever that might be. Um, I've also been at different um, live events. Like, I think this past year I was at PAX East, um, as well as a special feature with Honda. But um, I've, I, I try to participate as much as I can in the community, whether it might be in, in real-life meetups, as well as uh, local events here in the New York City area. Um, and so, yeah, you can find me there and most, most of the time you'll definitely find me online. All right. Uh, well, there you have it, Diego. Thank you again. Uh, it's just been a huge pleasure talking to you today, uh, on the deep track podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Blake. All right. And that is our episode for today. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, you can go subscribe to this podcast uh, from wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any issues, feel free to email us at info at the deep track.com. Uh, thanks again for tuning in until next time. Take care.